Father, I know many in this room, many joining us online are in places of their lives that are hard, difficult, that not just physically, but in many ways, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, even they feel paralyzed. Like the author of the song we just sang, paralyzed. And it's hard to pray in that place, your will be done. Father, it's hard to lay it all down before you, knowing we can't do what most needs done. So would you help us, Lord? Would you help us today to believe something from your word about your goodness? Something from your word about your power? your plan. And Lord, I pray you'd fill us with faith today that in those hard places, we would say, we believe you're good and strong. Your will be done. Jesus, your will be done. Teach us the word as we study today. And I pray not only for ourselves, but for our partners and brothers and sisters in this community who are a part of other local churches. Lord, I pray for Pastor Gary Montecalvo. Thank you for his friendship. Lord, thank you for the many ways he's been an encouragement to us as a church, to me as a brother in Christ. And I pray you'd fill him with the knowledge of the word of God and the power of the spirit today. And may the people of God, our brothers and sisters who are Destiny Christian Church, Lord, I pray they would go from their gathering filled with your spirit on mission as lights shining in the midst of darkness of this world. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you're doing among your people. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and take them and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're going to continue our study, our verse-by-verse study of the gospel of Mark And we are in uh, the final week of Christ's earthly ministry. There's a little bit of debate as to whether or not he's on Tuesday or Wednesday of the following week. I happen to think it's Tuesday, but I wouldn't argue with you if you said it was Wednesday. But here's what we know. By Friday, Jesus is going to be crucified by the religious leaders under the authority of the Roman government. And what we find in Mark chapter 12, where we have been the last several weeks is an escalating conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel, particularly a group known as the Sanhedrin, or the Supreme High Court of the Nation of Israel. And what we know from our study of Mark is that these leaders, these men, the Sanhedrin, had already made up their minds about Jesus and were determined to destroy them. But as much as they hated Jesus, they feared the crowds of people who seemed to love Jesus. And so they decided to try and publicly discredit Christ by asking him a series of trick questions they had thoughtfully and carefully crafted to trap him in his words. Their hope was to make him look foolish in front of the crowds, thereby causing him to lose popularity and allow them to arrest him and have him murdered. Well, last week we saw the first representatives from the Sanhedrin, two groups. The Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus with a question about taxes. And as much as we may have wished that Jesus had answered differently, his answer twisted them into knots. They walked away with their tails between their legs. Well, not only did that question fail to make Jesus look foolish, 
It actually had the opposite effect with the people. It caused the people, as they heard his answer, to marvel at his words. But the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, undeterred, send another group to try and trap Jesus with a trick question. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. The Pharisees and Herodians have slumped away after Jesus put them in their place. Mark chapter 12, verse 18, another group comes forward. Verse 18 says this, And the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Okay, stop right there. So the Sadducees, we talked about them a couple weeks ago. The Sadducees were largely upper-class Jewish men who occupied significant roles of power in Jewish culture. And they only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the law of Moses, as authoritative. And they treated all the rest of the books, like the book of Daniel and the prophets and the history of the chronicles of the kings, they treated those books like commentary or cultural history with no actual authority. They didn't believe in a spiritual realm. So they didn't believe in angels or demons. And they didn't believe in an afterlife either. They didn't believe in a heaven or a hell. And they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead at the end of the world. They just believed that once you died, that was it. You were gone. And that's actually why they were so determined to be rich and powerful and influential in this age. Since there wasn't anything to live for beyond this life, they just lived out what they believed. They figured you'd better get as much as you can before you die because after you die, you're gone, bro. That's all there is. And they hated Jesus. You know why? Because he threatened everything about their foundation for life and their structure of power. He demonstrated that he actually had power over demons and the spiritual realm. He showed firsthand that it was real. He even raised people from the dead. He even went so far as to claim to be the resurrection himself and the source of eternal life and afterlife. And so his very presence, his person, his teaching, his ministry, directly attacked the foundation of power and life for the Sadducees. So they could not stand him. So they come to Jesus with this made-up scenario, and they think they're going to stump Jesus with the question. And they they start by giving context. They they give this build-up to the question, and they refer to a provision In the Old Testament law of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 25, that provision enabled people to keep the wealth and inheritance of their family in their family line when a man died leaving a widow without any children. That provision was called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage allowed the closest living relative to marry the widow and have children so that they could inherit the family's wealth. 
And you can do a long study on this. We don't have time. It's really not the point for this morning. But that was a very significant thing in the nation of Israel that was divided for perpetuity by tribes or family groups where wealth and inheritance and land was tied within a family name. Well, the most famous example of leveret marriage in the Bible is something you probably know. It's the story of Boaz and Ruth. Boaz married Ruth. He raised up children who were able to claim the family inheritance because he was the nearest related single male to her deceased husband. Well, anyhow, in the Sadducees made up story, they take all of that cultural heritage and the the provision of the law of God and they make up this story around it. They say, there's this woman who marries one of seven brothers. Her husband dies before they have children and his brother steps in, exercising that leveret marriage provision to take her as his wife. Then he dies before they have children, so another brother takes her as his wife. And this happens with all seven brothers in their made-up scenario who all die without having children. And finally, the woman herself dies without children. And then comes the big finish by the Sadducees. And as I look at this, I can almost imagine this group of knuckleheads huddling up like a bunch of junior high boys snickering as they're asking their question that they don't believe anything about the premise. They don't believe anything that they're getting ready to say. They don't believe in an afterlife or a resurrection, yet they have the audacity to ask the question. And they're just kind of snickering. <laughs> I'm going to get him, dude. I'm going to get him. Jesus, when they all get raised from the dead and go to heaven. Seriously, guys, hold on. I got to ask this. Whose wife is she going to be then? Because heaven won't allow one woman to have seven brothers. And then they all roll on the ground laughing. Maybe I spent too much time in junior high, but that's how it went (laughs) in my mind. They turn, they high five each other. I mean, Jesus couldn't possibly believe that heaven would allow a woman to be married to seven men for all eternity, right? That doesn't sound like heaven to anybody in the room, correct? Especially the woman. Anyhow, these religious Einsteins had painted a man who claimed to be the, the resurrection and the source of eternal life, Jesus himself. They painted him into a theological corner, right? What could he possibly say to these brainiacs? Well, let's keep reading our text. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. (laughs) Jesus is the best, isn't he? I mean, I love him so much. And I warn you not to argue with him. He's just better at it than you are. He answers their question by saying this. And he doesn't even go down the road too far. He just starts right out by saying this. Hey, let me tell you why you're wrong. 
man, this is starting with a promising beginning. He says, let me tell you why you're wrong. The word wrong there in verse 25 translates a word that means to be led astray or to wander around aimlessly. I think that's a great description. These people have erred so far from the path of truth. Jesus says, they're just wandering aimlessly through life. And why are they wandering aimlessly through life? He says it's because they don't understand two critical things. The word of God and the power of God. Now we're going to come back to that in just a second. But then Jesus then tells them the truth. Okay, He says in the world to come, we're not going to be married like we are in this age. Marriage in this age is a picture of Christ's relationship with his people. We learn from the rest of scripture that marriage was created by God to be a shadow of something that's going to be fulfilled when Jesus receives all of his people to himself as, his, as their one true love, as his bride. And all of the shadows will be fulfilled by the reality in the age to come. For instance, God will be our true father. I don't believe that the Bible teaches that when we enter the kingdom of heaven, my children are going to look at me like I was their true father. I believe they will remember that I was their earthly father, but we'll together stand side by side, more like brother and sisters. Not me as the sister, them as the sisters, my girls. So we'll stand there together, and we together will look at our one true father who is God. That doesn't give you permission to call me Titus before I die. Okay, just so you know, even though I'm your brother. Sorry. Anyhow, so we'll stand there as people whose shadows have been fulfilled. And that's what he's talking about in marriage. It was a shadow of the love and intimacy of Jesus for his people He being our one true love. He's saying we'll be united to him and we'll be united to everyone who is in him in a way that fulfills and transcends even the most intimate and enduring relationship here on earth. And in that way, he says, we'll be like the angels. Now listen, we won't become angels. Uh, We will be like angels in the fact that we won't have need for marriage anymore. We won't need the shadow relationships in heaven because we will have the reality, the eternal relationship we were truly made to have with Jesus himself. And the Sadducees, Jesus is pointing out, missed out completely on this truth. Why? Because they could not conceive that God is so powerful that he's able to fulfill and transcend even the most powerful and intimate relationships we have in this life. We won't have something less real or less pleasurable than marriage. We will have something more permanent and more satisfying than marriage. Namely, we will have the fountainhead of all joy and pleasure. God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we will be fulfilled in him by his holy, glorious power. That's what Jesus says. Then he uses one of the most common phrases in the entire first five books of the Bible, the part of the Bible they actually said they believed, the the most common phrase to describe God, or one of the most common phrases, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That phrase uses the present tense verbs to describe God's relationship with men who were very much dead when that statement was made. By hundreds of years, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
were dead when God appeared in the bush to Moses. And what Jesus is pointing out is that God himself, in this part of the Old Testament, they say has authority over their lives. The the part that they dogmatically claim to believe, God himself in that section of the Bible said, I am Abraham's God today. He said, it isn't that I view myself as Abraham's God today. It's that Abraham views me as his God today because I am currently their God because they currently exist. What Jesus is saying is that while death is a separation, it isn't a conclusion. We go on to live in eternal life Or eternal separation from God. And those words from Jesus describing that dynamic should mean a whole lot to all of us today. Because many of us had loved ones who have passed recently. This Friday we had the funeral of George Kessel. Yesterday we had the funeral of Creighton McConnell. This room was filled on two days back to back with people who have mourned rightfully so the loss of men they deeply and dearly loved. And there is great hope in the words of Christ to think when we breathe our last breath on this earth, we don't cease to exist. For those who place their faith and trust in Jesus, our last breath out in this world is immediately followed by our first breath in in the presence of the world to come. When we close our eyes to our loved ones on this side, we open our eyes to our one true love, Jesus, on the other side. If you've lost a loved one recently who's trusting in Jesus, I pray that you will remember the fact that right now, right now, The words of Christ remind us this very moment, they are in the presence of Almighty God. He knows them and they know Him. He is their God and they are His people and they are more alive today than they have ever been before because of the grace and glory and goodness of Jesus. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and your loved ones in Christ this very moment. And the Sadducees, Jesus says, had been reading these words, these very words, their whole lives, but they had wandered so far from the path of truth That they were aimlessly going through life because they would not allow for any other meaning to these words than the one they'd always understood. And the consequences were devastating. Ideas have consequences, you know. What we believe determines how we live. And their everyday lives were dramatically affected by their errant Theology. They lived in a pursuit of money and power and influence precisely because they had a theology that said that this life on earth is all that there is. They were merely living out what they really believed. And ultimately, guys, it cost them their souls because they rejected Jesus and his claim of resurrection. Even after Jesus died and rose again, they refused to believe in it. Even though there was evidence in the lives of those who were transformed by Jesus in the book of Acts, the Sadducees 
religiously and rigidly held to their claim there is no resurrection. As a matter of fact, you don't have to go there this morning, but in Acts chapter 23, when the Apostle Paul was brought before this Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Jerusalem, he remembered there are Sadducees sitting on this council alongside the Pharisees. And he knew that the Sadducees would reject him when he brought up the resurrection. And so he brought up the resurrection knowing they would reject him and also knowing that would cause a fight with the Pharisees and it would result in this conflict in court. It's another story. It's a really cool effect. But that's what happened. They rejected him because the Sadducees were so self-deceived that even when Jesus rose from the dead and there were witnesses to the fact and transformed lives as a result... They would not allow the word of God to mean anything other than what they traditionally had held it to mean. And they did not know the scriptures as a result. And they did not know the power of God. So they literally rejected Jesus and they rejected anyone who represented Jesus. And that's the exchange we have in Mark 12 and from it. Guys, we learn an incredibly valuable lesson. It's our big idea for today. The big idea is this. We wander dangerously astray when we do not know the word and power of God. We wander dangerously astray when we do not know the word and the power of God. Brothers and sisters, it is really easy for us to look down our noses at the Sadducees and see them wandering from the truth of God's word and power and ask ourselves almost incredulously, how could they possibly do that standing in the presence of Christ? But I want to encourage us not to dismiss the fact that we are all susceptible to the same root issues that they had. And I'm not saying that all of us in this room are wandering from truth in a way that would cause us to lose our souls or become heretics. Though I think we need to be humble enough to say, God, I have that in me if you don't keep me by your grace. Let's not assume we're not heretics. I guess that's the way we should live. Let's not assume that we have it all right. But here's my, my bigger concern. It's not that all of us would be heretics or wander from the faith in a way that we would lose our souls. My bigger concern for many of us is that we would know the gospel but still wander away from God's good design for our lives and the powerful transformation that Jesus brings when we just take him at his words. You see, Christ's assessment of the Sadducees serves as a massive reminder and warning to every one of us. And here's what I want us to do in the time we have remaining. I want to hear the warning from Christ's words and call our hearts today to beware, to beware of fostering to the damage of our lives, to the wandering of our lives and families. Beware of fostering a lack of knowledge of God's word and a lack of knowledge of God's power. So in the time we have remaining, let's just take those two things one at a time. Church, beware of wandering aimlessly through life. Beware of wandering due to not knowing the word of God. Listen, the Bible is filled with promises that are attached to knowing and believing the word of God. Psalm 1-3 says that the person who meditates on the word of God is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season 
This leaf also does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Psalm 119.9 says, A young man keeps his way pure by guarding it according to God's word. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, The word of God is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In Matthew 4.4, Jesus rebuked the temptation of Satan by saying, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. How many of them? Every word that proceeds comes from the mouth of God. Friends, the entire Christian life is a life of faith. Faith that's responding to the truth and promises of Jesus that are revealed to us in the word of God, the Bible. And here's what that practically means for all of us. We cannot live by faith in truth we do not know. And we cannot exercise faith in promises from Jesus that we have never heard. So we must be people devoted to the word of God. I want to share just a couple contributing factors that I believe lead us to living with a functional lack of knowledge in God's word. The first is biblical ignorance. Or biblical illiteracy. One of the most obvious reasons that people live without knowledge of the word of God is simply due to the fact that many people have never read the whole Bible. They just don't know what the Bible teaches. And I'm not saying that at any given time, anyone in this room will ever have the whole Bible memorized. I know that I don't. Yeah, I'm missing a couple verses in Deuteronomy. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Even more than that, just memorizing the Bible, I don't think we should have the pride to say that we will perfectly understand anything the Bible teaches in doctrine, let alone all that the Bible has to say. That's not what I'm talking about with biblical ignorance. What I'm saying is that when we only possess bits and pieces of the Bible And have those little bits and pieces maybe out of context at disposal in our life. We become very vulnerable to misinterpretations at best and lies of the enemy at worst. Remember, the oldest trick in Satan's book isn't to deny the Bible. It's to distort the Bible. And it has a major impact on how we live. Now, I've thought about dozens of examples, but I know you want to see the Super Bowl tonight. So let me just give you one quick example among many that we could talk through. Every now and then, I hear young parents talk about having a grace-based approach to parenting. Now, let me go on record. I believe that a grace-based approach to parenting is a very important and biblical thing for us as Christian parents. Did you hear what I just said? I believe it's really important and biblical that we have a grace-based approach, a gospel approach to parenting. However, if we do not have a robust understanding of biblical truth, we will hear the term grace And potentially think that grace means we allow our children to do anything they naturally want to do without experiencing the God-honoring consequences of discipline. So while our toddlers are tearing down the restaurant and terrorizing the patrons, we're sitting in our booth claiming 
Grace is good. Listen, Titus chapter 2 says this. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Hebrews 12.6 says... For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The Bible teaches us this, that discipline done in a way that glorifies God and teaches our children the gospel and points them to their need of Jesus, that kind of discipline is grace. Grace without Christ honoring discipline isn't grace. My point isn't about parenting. My point is just to say that when we wander from God's word in a full, robust knowledge of what his word actually says, we are prone to wander from God's good design in our lives. And that's true about all kinds of things, not just parenting. People misrepresent or distort what the Bible says about worship, what it says about judging others. What it says forgiveness is or isn't, what it means to love our neighbors. And most importantly, people distort or misunderstand what the Bible says is true for us because of Jesus. And hear the warning from Christ. Being ignorant of biblical truth puts us at risk to wander away from the path of truth. And the Sadducees remind us that comes with devastating consequences. So let me ask you this. What would it look like? If you exchanged what many in our culture of Christianity have, which is a casual reading for parts of the Bible, and you exchange that for the careful study of the whole Bible. If you need help getting started, I want to encourage you to talk with one of our pastors today or set up a time in the near future to talk with us. If you need a resource, we have some resources that we would love to recommend to you. Some of those are just free resources you can get through apps on your phone. Uh, A man in our church, David Ivey, has written a great resource to help you walk through every verse of the Bible. We'd love to get you connected with resources to help you walk through the whole Bible and understand the whole counsel of God. At the very least, I want to encourage you to jump into our Wednesday night men's and women's Bible study of the book of Acts. It's a great format to learn how to daily read verse by verse through books of the Bible. What would it look like if you said, I don't want to live in biblical ignorance, and so I want to engage in the study of the whole counsel of God. But I don't believe that it's just biblical ignorance that causes us to live without a functional knowledge of God's word. I believe it's also something called spiritual obstinance. You see, the Sadducees weren't completely ignorant of what the Bible says. They had read this part of the Torah countless times. They were experts in the first five books of the Bible that Jesus was quoting. They knew what it said. So they weren't really completely ignorant, but they were obstinate. What it means is they refused to accept any interpretation of Scripture than the one that they had always held. They brought their preconceived ideas to the Bible, and rather than humbly bend their way of thinking to the Bible, you know what they did? They worked to bend the Bible to their way of thinking. And be careful not to assume that's absent in your life. You ever got in a fight with someone and looked for a verse to prove them wrong? Just saying. Listen to 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friend, if you come away from your Bible reading every morning and always feel self-justified in the way that you're living, you might want to re-examine your approach to Bible study. See, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to correct the people of God and convict us concerning His righteousness and our lack thereof. To point us to Jesus in a way where we would know without a shadow of a doubt we cannot do it on our own apart from Christ. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you should always feel terrible when you read the Bible. I'm not saying that at all. The scripture is a source of good news for us in Jesus. It refreshes our souls. It encourages us in light of Christ. However, one of the ways the word profits us is by correcting and reproving us, being a mirror that exposes where we aren't yet like Christ, so we desperately need to depend on Christ. So let me ask you this. What would it look like if you began daily reading the Bible, and while you, yes, were looking and asking the Holy Spirit for those words of exhortation and encouragement, the good news that, yes, is our in Christ, and alongside that, you humbly ask the Holy Spirit, To use the word to reprove and correct and even rebuke you in love. So that the voice of your father loving you into the life of Christ would be a voice you heard each and every day. We wander astray for a lack of knowledge of God's word somewhat because of biblical ignorance. But sometimes because of spiritual obstinance where we are proud And stiff-necked and unwilling to say, God, correct me. I am not so proud to believe I've got it all right. Beware of wandering due to not knowing the word of God. And then we'll close with this. Beware of wandering due to not knowing the power of God. Look at verse 24, Mark 12. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Of God. I want you to carefully notice what Jesus is saying here, guys. He points to the reason they have wandered from the path of truth. My question is, how many reasons does Jesus give? Looks like two, right? They didn't know the scriptures or the power of God. But look carefully. Jesus explicitly says there's only one reason. That word reason is in the singular. He's saying there's one reason. And then he says two things. And the question is, what's the point that Jesus is making? And here's the point. The point is that knowing the scriptures must be connected to believing in the power of God or we will go astray. Guys, it's a both and proposition. And that's why a head full of Bible knowledge is no guarantee of spiritual maturity. It's why you can graduate from seminary and still go to hell. That's why we are not simply called to know the truth through mental assent, but to believe in humble faith the truth of the word of God. The Sadducees wouldn't believe in the resurrection, not because the Bible doesn't teach it, and not because they weren't well-versed with the scriptures that prove it, but because they refused to believe that God can do it. They didn't understand how God could do it, so they wouldn't believe that he would. And this is where my heart felt most convicted for me and for us today. 
Because I believe that there is certainly a lack of knowledge about the word of God that is an issue, maybe to some extent in almost all of our lives, including mine. But I am convinced that more often than not, our root issue isn't a lack of knowledge about what the Bible says. It's a failure to comprehend and believe and rely on the power of the God who said it. We stumble at the word of God because we just can't comprehend how God is strong enough to do what he says. That's actually what the author of Hebrews says was the problem with the people of Israel. When they were delivered from Egypt but failed to walk into the land God had promised to give them. Hebrews 4.2 says this, For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard, listen to this, the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The promises of God that would be delivered by his power were not united by faith. They didn't believe God could or would do it. They didn't believe in his power to make his promises come true. So the people who heard those promises that God would give them the land, they just didn't believe him. They saw the giants and they were strong and big and inhabited the land and they failed to believe that God is powerful enough and strong enough and his work is sufficient enough to defeat their enemies and give them their land. So you know what happened? They wandered around a wilderness until an entire generation died off. Not because they didn't know the word of God, they just didn't believe he had the power to do it. Knowing God's word doesn't benefit us, church, unless it's united to faith in God's power. And friend, I just need to ask you, where might you be close to wandering from the path of truth? Not because you don't know what the Bible says. Because you're struggling to believe that God is strong enough to do what he has said in the Bible. Let me just give you a few things God has said. He said, if you're trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God promises to make you holy and blameless and completely forgiven of all your sins that they would be removed from you as far as the east is from the west and cast into the depths of the sea where God will remember them no more. Do you believe he's strong enough to do that for you? Are you living like it? Are you feeling like it? Are you claiming his power over and again when the enemy accuses you or brings up your past sin? Do you take him to the cross and say, my God is faithful to do all that he's promised and he's promised I'm blameless and holy and forgiven? Or are you living in perpetual guilt and shame? Bring it to the Father today. Trust him and take him at his word. If you're trusting in Jesus, you need to know God promises to make you a new creation Freed from the power of sin. Freed from the addictions and the old patterns of your life before Christ. Do you believe he's strong enough to do what he says? Are you living like it? What would it look like for you to take a step out of your safe boat into a stormy sea? Feeling the risk of all that includes and taking God at his word. Believing he will give you the power to live the life of Christ why? Because he said he would. If you're trusting in God through the work of Jesus Christ, he promises to give you his Holy Spirit so that Jesus himself will live in you each and every day. He really means that. That Jesus himself will live in your marriage 
that Jesus himself will really live toward your children or toward your parents or in your school or in your job, that Jesus himself will really live in you. That's Galatians 2.20. He promises that by the Holy Spirit's power, Jesus himself will live in you. We started our service with baptism and all of us, when Pastor Justin said, not I, we responded, but Christ who lives in me, we say it, we know it. Do we believe it? Do we live like we really believe that Christ himself is living in us when we trust him. And friend, I do not say that. One, to produce guilt and shame that would cause you to try and roll up your sleeves and act like Jesus is living in you. I say that to warn our hearts Of how subtly we fall for the trap of the Sadducees. He has promised it, friend. He will do it, friend. Not by your power, friend. But by Christ in you. What would it look like today? If we really believe. The word of the gospel of God revealed in the scriptures. That Jesus himself will save us in every way we need saved. Restore us to the life that only God could live. Resurrect us in this very life by his resurrection power. And live in our very lives, our marriages, our homes, our workplaces, our schools, our community. With his power to live his life. What would it look like, church? What would it look like? It's what God has promised. So will we be people who take him at his word by believing what he has said to be true and believing he has the power to do it, whether we understand how he will or not. Faithful is he who has called you. He also will do it. May the word of God be rich in you today. And may the Holy Spirit of God fill you with faith to believe our God will do everything he's said. Period. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Some of you may have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus. And this morning the Spirit of God has been stirring you. To call on Christ, to trust in Him, knowing that you can't make up for your sin by your own power. You need Jesus. The Spirit of God stirring you to trust that Jesus lived the perfect life you failed to live. And died the death you deserve to die on the cross as a payment for your sin and rose again three days later. Would you, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, call on Him even right now. Just acknowledge you've sinned against God and you can't make yourself right. That's why you need Jesus. And call on Jesus in faith. 
saying, Jesus, I believe you and trust you as my Savior and ask you to forgive my sin and restore me to God. I'm trusting in you, Jesus, and not me. Be my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. The Spirit stirs your heart to pray a prayer of salvation today. Don't hesitate. Do this morning. Right this moment, call on Christ. Talk to one of our pastors at the close of this service. We'd love to pray with you about your relationship with Jesus. I know most in this room would say, I am trusting in Christ. Let me ask you, what promise of Scripture are you struggling to believe over your life today? Would you simply ask the Lord to strengthen your faith? Don't try to fake it. Just confess that you don't know how he's going to do what he's promised to do. But ask him to fill you with faith to believe it. And to rely on the power of Jesus to do so. Father, we thank you for the word of Christ. God, thank you for the the encounter with these religious people that Jesus had 2,000 years ago that is as relevant to us today as it was then. Lord, we confess that our hearts are susceptible to the same root issues of the Sadducees. So God, stir in us, I pray, an appetite, a hunger for your word and give us, I pray, by the power of your spirit, self-discipline to seek you in your word each day with humility diligence and Holy Spirit understanding. Let us see you and hear from you and learn from you in your word. Make us students of the book, God. Father, I pray you would also fill us with faith to unite what you've said in your word with faith to believe you'll do what you say. God, I pray there would be an explosion of the power of Christ's life in us. As we become people who may not understand how you're going to do it, but we just believe you will. Lord, may we live by faith today. And I ask all of these things in Jesus' name.